Hello, Gap Year Universe. I'm Julia Rogers. And I'm Margot Brookfield. Welcome to Gap Year Radio, the show that brings you information and inspiration to plan a life-changing Gap Year adventure. Today on the pod, we have the best-selling author, Laura Pryor Palmer, author of Rough Magic, a book that was released earlier this year by Penguin Publishing. The memoir tells a story of Laura becoming the first woman to win the world's longest horse race, the Mongol Derby in Mongolia. The Mongol Derby is an equestrian endurance race. The race extends a thousand kilometers through the Mongolian steppe and is known as the world's longest horse race and sometimes hardest horse race as well. The course recreates the horse messenger system developed by Genghis Khan in 1224. We are really, really excited to have Lara on the podcast, and she is right here. So welcome, Lara. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Julia. It's great to be here. Wonderful. So, Laura, just to jump right into it, I guess we know that gap years are a lot more prevalent in the UK and in much of Europe, obviously a much more kind of budding experience here for for United States um, students who are interested in gap time. But how did you end up taking a gap year? Like what drove you to that? And then what else did you do during that year leading up to the horse race? Mm, Great question. So it's quite normal to take a gap year in the UK, especially if you've been lucky enough to go to a private school, uh, that sort of freedom is promoted. But the reason I actually took a gap year was because I tried for Oxford University and didn't get in and I wanted to try again. So I thought, okay, I'll I'll have a gap year. And then I became excited about um, just being in a space that felt like a void and the scary in some ways, but also incredibly exciting. And even though I had no idea where I was going, I quite quickly began to miss the structure of school though, and the the knowingness of it. And there's something about a gap year that promotes uncertainty, which I think is a valuable life skill. Such a valuable life skill, especially um with students today being everything is like pre-planned and predestined in some ways when it comes to university or college. So I think that that teaching students the un, to deal with uncertainty and the resilience that comes with that, I think is really important. Um, and you ended up at Stanford, right? So how was, how did that, how did that journey end up? <laughs> ah, that's a good question. So I tried for Oxford again and did not get in and uh, went up to Edinburgh this was weeks after getting back from the Mongol Derby and being in the throes of trying to write Rough Magic, even though I didn't know it was yet going to be a book. And I was very reluctant reluctant. to go up north to Scotland and I found it underwhelming being there and wanted to be challenged really really immensely and was sick of being in this web of connections in the UK and people from the sort of class I'd grown up in, uh, I wanted just to break out of all of that, and it seems to me clear that American University would offer that in its diversity. And also, I was missed sport a lot, and people didn't take sport very seriously in the UK. So I thought I could get that in the States. And a teacher from school had randomly emailed me when I got back from that race at the end of my gap year, said, you know, I always thought you should go to Stanford. It's really quirky and diverse, she said. <laughs> of course, I later discovered that Stanford is not quirky. <laughs> and it is diverse <laughs> in, a, in a certain sense, in a representational sense, but not totally diverse in its ways of thinking, I'd say. So, <laughs> I applied to transfer and was extremely surprised to be offered a place. That's awesome. 
Stanford is a fantastic school. So um, I'm sure that that was, yeah, a, a nice change of pace from what all what all you got into on your gap time. Um, mm. <clears throat> and I know that at the beginning of the book, you, it, it, you there's like a short blurb at the beginning, you know, of you being an au pair, I believe. And, you know, I'm curious if that was what took up the most of the rest of that gap time. And then what possessed you to join the Derby? I, you know, I know you talk about this and, um, but what really was like, okay, I'm going to go for this, um, you know, with much less experience mm. or training than many others who had entered the race. Mm. Yeah, that's it. I'm really enjoying talking about this in, as part of the year because I usually just get asked you know, about the race as though it's contextless. And it really does relate to how my gap year had gone up to that point. I wasn't thinking it, of it as a gap year. It just felt like this space I was in and mm -hmm. I was following the predictable arc of in the UK at least working up until December trying to earn a little and then using that money to travel a bit so I'd been I'd gone to India with one of my closest friends and had known my grandmother had lived in India in a actually a colonial context but nonetheless was intrigued by her time there so traveled from the south to the north and felt very idiotic with my lonely planet guidebook going to temples staring at things being it's part of your rate of passage <laughs> <laughs> right yeah i think maybe you have to go through this but it just felt very superficial it didn't feel like i was making friends in india until actually the end i did slightly fall in love uh went up in kashmir but that's another story in private a different book <laughs> <laughs> it's a different book but nonetheless i came home slightly exasperated um i'd enjoyed the last bar moving in with a a sort of group of people in Kashmir and that was a highlight but I was recalled by my mother who said you know your horse needs you to care for it and compete it otherwise yeah you you, sh you you don't get to have a horse so I felt very lucky to be able to ride so I was competing a little bit in the UK and then one of the other things I wanted to do was improve my German so I took on a job as an au pair and it was all very bitty, you know, I just kept doing things for myself. It's like, I want to learn German. I want to travel through India. And I hadn't done anything that felt like it was for something bigger than myself. So when I got back from that, oh, in fact, I was sacked at that au pair job because I was, well, wasn't negligent, but I was very, very sulky. And I rarely came down from the loft. So yes, I was probably a bit negligent. I didn't like the children very much. Anyway, <laughs> um, I... I thought, oh, I really want to do something where I just get out of myself, where I give myself. So I applied to all sorts of things, like a sort of uh, an orphanage placement in Ethiopia, organic farming in Wales, and an organic farming placement in Tonga in the Pacific as well. I was just really mm -hmm. trying to bust out of myself somehow and thought that geography would do that for me. Of course, it never does because you take your mind with you wherever you go. And, and then when I saw the Derby, I was like, mm, this race, this horse race, like utterly unusual. It's like, I've never seen anything like this. And in fact, there is nothing like it in the world. It's completely oblivion. Mm. I thought, mm, that's not really charitable, but it's a really good excuse to raise loads of money for charity, which is quite a common thing in the UK and I'm sure in the US to, to raise money for running a marathon or something. I thought people might be more likely to give for this weird horse race. So then I... I sort of flung an application at the Derby because the gap here is, I think, a series of application flingings and unknowings and just mm. letting the world take you where it wants to and actually trying to plan it sometimes is... If you're the kind of person that likes to plan, it's probably a good idea not to plan your gap year. And if you're like me and you don't really know how to plan, it's probably a good idea to plan your gap year. 
in any sense. I think it's a, an opportunity to to do something un, unlike your habit. But that's hard. <laughs> so I hope I've answered your question a little bit. The Derby seemed enormous and unknown, and I didn't understand it, which is why I wanted to do it. That's fascinating. Um, and it, I, I, I understand that inclination to tr- wanting to fling yourself at the kind of hardest or biggest thing that you can think of. That was one of the reasons why I, um, and this is Julia speaking, uh, went to Tanzania uh, on my gap year because it was a place that I wasn't drawn to in a, personal travel sense, but it was a place that I felt like I could um, contribute in some way. So it was it was more, I mean, at the time, again, when you're, you know, younger and um, thinking in things in a different context, you know, you try to do you try to do your best. And you're obviously my thinking has evolved since my gap year. But um, mm-hmm. that that seeking outward and um, mm-hmm. trying to really dismantle the framework that you've grown up in or that you've you know that you've mm. been educated in is really an interesting concept um, for framing your gap year I also really appreciate the thought of just doing something different than yourself as you were saying uh, mm-hmm. if you're a planner to not plan um, and vice versa and as a planner I'm like wow that's actually really interesting if I were to take some time <laughs> and not plan everything out what would happen um, I, I appreciate that insight Yeah, I think that that was a golden nugget, I think, as well. (laughs) One other thing, uh, one of my um, British friends, Holly uh, Margot, remember when she Uh said that her mother told her to plan her gap year doing something for your head, something for your heart and something for your soul? Yes. Oh, my goodness. That's a bit like eat, pray, love. Yeah. That's been one of my favorite yeah, driving forces of like thinking about gap year planning or even personal life planning. That has also been one of my longtime golden nuggets. Mm -hmm. So, Laura, we would love to have you read a favorite passage from the book, one that maybe feels close to your heart or a, a favorite passage from your from your book. Sure. Okay. So I, I like reading different bits, but today I want to read a part from the middle of the race or the early middle when things aren't going so well. I've just been left behind. Left alone on the eighth leg of the race, I'm giddy at the thought of navigation. I pull over the brow into a sphere of rolling mountains and frown at the terrain for the energy it's about to suck from my pony. I've no longer any words for the land, though the view ahead is one my parents might classify as beautiful or glorious or quite spectacular, as if the landscape were an ornament created for human commentary. Half an hour after being left behind, the pony and I follow two distant dots that appear and quickly disappear on the horizon. I assume them to be Claire and Kirsten, who are two other competitors, though to be honest, there's no way of telling they aren't two married goats on an afternoon honeymoon. When the dots lead us too far to the left, the GPS, in a rare moment of devotion, corrects us before damage to the route is done. Leaning off the sides of hills, we pull forward, feeling very alone, as if we're the last drops at the bottom of a wine glass. On the one hand, the pony's laissez-faire attitude makes for soothing company. On the other, we're barely halfway to the next station. When he's had enough of trotting, I call him a banana, and I tell him he'll make me cry. We're the last of the chasers, can't he see? He pricks his ears. Anger wears down the body as a mountain wears down a horse. A proverb from Western Mongolia. 
on we graft through valleys of sadness into a sedate evening sky. Twice we walk high in the centre of a goat herd. Their eyes stare through us. I try not to care that we've fallen behind, yet I care ever more. I decide I was never meant to last long with the leading riders, but when we come out of the mountains onto a track, I push the pony, whom I've taken to calling best horse. You must keep cantering, that was Kirsten's advice. The horse doesn't seem tired, only exceptionally grumpy. Me, I'm the same. What failed hope, what undone legs. Not long ago, I was high on the excitement of the Urtu. Now I'm just a frustrated cabbage, earnestly upset. This pendulum of emotions must be the joke of the human. But never before have I felt it so condensed and rarely so convincing. Thank you. I love hearing it in your voice. It's so much better than my voice in my head. <laughs> <laughs> also, I often feel like a, frust a frustrated cabbage. I feel like I need to bring that into my everyday nomenclature. <laughs> oh my gosh. Thanks for that, Lara. Yeah. So... Lara, I love how you, you frame your entry into the race as kind of um, haphazard and un underprepared and things like that. Um, and you certainly did not start the race, uh, or at least you didn't write about starting the race, um, being competitive. Um, but that changes and evolves as, as the race goes on. So at what point during the race did you kind of start building on that drive to win and and realize that it was possible and how did that evolution happen in in the moment I suppose as to, as opposed to how it's written mm. so the book is written quite in the moment so but it's I guess it doesn't try too hard to tell a story or a chain of events and I'm not very good at seeing how things cause each other I think I don't really think of time as linear, as going from one place to another. I think of it as all smushed into the same space and like a like a pudding that's been mixed up with the cream, you know, it's all just smushed together. So I can't really tell the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning, but certainly I had a strong idea that the person from Texas who was competing in the race, who said she, she would win, and was very confident, I thought too confident, should not win this race. And I really hoped that she wouldn't. And um, which is a sad admission, to be honest, I am not in that mindset now. Like I don't any longer <laughs> really care or believe. But of course at the time I was a 19 year old girl and nothing to do with being a girl, 19 year old person fresh out of school, which can be quite good at promoting unkindness or whatever not that it's unkind to be competitive but you know like I really was just wanting to make sure she didn't win so when I heard that she was ahead out in the front of the race while I was you know last or something I was like god someone needs to catch her like Jesus but I knew it wouldn't be me because I was sort of so far behind it was probably about to drop out well that was something we we talked about too was that it feels like so quickly you went from being basically the, the back of the pack to like fifth so what happened to all those people in between? <laughs> Where know, did they... It's like a magic trick, isn't it? Yes. It's so funny. <laughs> it's sort of like, I don't know, I was watching last night the documentary about Tracy Edwards, who in her 20s decided she would organize the first ever female crew to go on the round the world race. This is in mm. 89. And 
you know, like all the men were sort of like, they shouldn't be doing this race. God, they'll never make it past the first leg, which was from the UK to Uruguay. Lo and behold, they make it easily to Uruguay. Not only that, they win the next leg through the Southern Oceans, which is the most dangerous place in the world to sail. And the, it's freezing cold, you know, you've got icy sails. Then they win the next leg, the technical leg between Australia, blah, blah, blah. You know, they just get the hang yeah. of it. They just do it. And it, it's sort of, it's like, it's just like, okay, like I, I just threw myself into it. And I, mm. I think that, the race is quite distracting. You're around a lot of other people. Your body will distract you with aches and pains. So people who set out seeming like they would win and would be ahead of me very quickly felt differently. Whereas I felt setting out that I would not finish, that I was too late signing up to this race. I was just, um, so I was really scared from the very beginning. I think we all were really scared. See, none of this is making sense to me. Like, I have no way of telling you why I got ahead of other people. It's just so impossible to say what was going on for them. And uh-huh. so it's, like trying to speak for other people of course doesn't work yeah. for me i guess i guess that's well it's what not I an really it's mean. not an easy race to describe and i think you do the best you can in kind of uh, unpacking like the fact that you have to stop it's not i mean it's not like one of these races where you're you go until you reach the finish line there's all these rules around when you can start and when you can stop and um and the checks and stuff like that and i feel like that might be a place where people gain time is like the, during those penalties and, and things like that is that do i understand that correctly yeah totally i think you're onto it because the race is an endurance race for humans not horses so you ride 25 mm. different horses over this period of 10 days and you change horses two or three or sometimes four times a day and you cannot ride after 8 30 or before 7 a.m so you're on the horse for a 13 and a half hours or various horses but you really need to be careful at the stations that you don't spend too much time enjoying the food or going to the toilet or chatting or sleeping even though you're in this state of nausea and tiredness that you've never experienced before that saturates your whole body with new colors <laughs> you know it's just strange so that was important not getting off the horse during the leg to wee sorry is that too mm. crude no people humans not do that at all okay to mention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's like little rules like that i was quite disciplined about it but then um i said maybe there's a savviness that i had about the navigation even though i kept getting lost i don't mm. know i really think a lot of it was the world in control of me or the horses in control of me and i can't quite chart how how that happened but certainly changing horses all the time gives so much uncertainty and yeah. and that that's a and that alchemy of part. like also like maybe who who you made friends with at the changeovers and like them giving you or or maybe to other people not giving you the best horses like did that ever happen did you notice like the people who were in charge of handing like the families essentially or the and the and the race mm. um officials was there ever like disagreement over like if they were playing favorites or if you were rude to them? Do you feel like they would give you like a, a slower horse or a more unruly horse? Yeah, certainly. I mean, we did get to choose our own horses, but nonetheless, they recommended often if you ask them, you know, they would tell you. And that happened at the last day of my race, at least. Devon, the Texan competitor, uh, was ahead of me and she'd been made to wait with her horse because its heart rate was high. She had many horses with high heart rates that day. So you have to wait at each station until the horse is fit mm-hmm. and healthy again before you're allowed to move on. And he, the herder at that station, this was interesting. He said, he, he thought that 
Devon shouldn't have had to wait for her horse. She should have been allowed to ride onto the next leg. So he disagreed with the race rules, essentially, because they clash with the way Mongolian horse racing works, in which the first horse over the line in these races in which eight to 12-year-olds, well, sometimes older, sometimes younger race, it wins, no matter whether mm. it drops dead or, or you know, it wins if it crosses the line. So that that meant that he didn't want me to be given his fastest horse. And he, I think he hid his fastest horse from me. <laughs> he put it somewhere else so that I couldn't see it. And the vet at the station had said, where's it gone, that fast horse? The vet sort of like wanting me to have it or whatever. And, it, and he just sort of wouldn't. So I, I just got on a very slow horse with quite wooden. I mean, it's it's good to have a slow horse sometimes. It tests your patience. But it wasn't what I needed that, that day. And I liked the way the race was in the hands of the, <laughs> the herders who were generously yeah. being, you like, lending their horses. I mean, they were being paid, but it's still a generous act. Yeah, I found that cooperation between the like the Mongolians and the the race um, the race organizers to be really interesting. Mm-hmm. And I know that and you I re- I read in another interview that you've kind of like the hardest thing about writing the book was was how to portray Mongolia and and the Mongolians. Is that still something that you feel? Yes, I do feel that because I think if you're going to write about somewhere, it's important to have lived there for a long time and to have integrated and to speak the language. And I'm very, very wary of colonial travel writing that has then evolved into uncolonial, but with the same sort of philosophy travel writing. It sort of goes, I went here for about two months and now I'm going to write about it because it was exotic rather than writing about you know, the 10 years in my hometown, but just because it's not interesting enough to readers or something. So there's a sense of like thriving on the otherness. Um, and I didn't want to do that, but I didn't almost didn't know how not to do that. So I was wary that in this book, people would be thirsty for uh, facts about ways of nomadic living on the steppe, for example. Mm. And I had to put a few things in as though I knew, as though I was knowing. But of course, that's, that's hopeless because amongst, the people who are living on the steppe who identify as Mongolian. There are so many different ways of living. And also, who am I to write about them and them to be read about you know, when they never give me permission to be written about? I mean, this is all taking it to an extreme, but I really think it does have to be very thoroughly questioned, writing about a place that you are not a part of. Because is that our right? Do we have that right? And I much prefer to question my own tradition and my own background than to write sort of on a surface level about someone else's. And in that sense, I think if I've been asked in the, recently in Rough Magic events whether I'm going to write about another adventure or perhaps my travels in Iran where I learned Persian or Farsi, I think I would shy away from that until I had felt that I had really written and understood what it means to be a white traveler from a developing country you know it's sort of it's more of an interesting question and i think the gap here is an outwardness and it's wonderful to leave your country especially if you felt isolated culturally growing up in, in the uk or the states but it's also mm. important to to really interrogate what you mean uh, when you arrive somewhere for a short time yeah no i just think that that's such an important theme to be mindful of um you know, I know that you're coming from the lens of writing, but just as a traveler in general, recognizing, you know, and this is something I think that is so 
important as a piece of the gap year if an international component is part of it that just because you've been somewhere you know even if it's yes for months or a year that's still not your your culture your place you can't speak to the truth of all the people there and so even when storytelling about travels or um you know i think just having that awareness and understanding and i'm so glad that you brought up that point that you have that lens at which to look at your writing about mongolia um you know, I think it's just something that's so important to realize, like, this isn't my culture. It's not my, not necessarily my story to tell. And, and I, yeah, I think that you very beautifully stepped around that in the book and, um, at the end that it wasn't a story about Mongolia. It was really a story about, you know, your experience on the race was my mm-hmm. perspective. And I, you know, but I think that you mm-hmm. still treaded that line very, very well. Thanks for bringing it up. It's like, uh, something that I think can get avoided quite easily so i appreciate that we've had the conversation <laughs> yes absolutely and so something else that i think felt like a very big theme of this book and this win for you is that you're not only the youngest person but also the first woman to ever win the race and so has you being a woman seemed to be a bigger thing of it or that you were young and you won the race or yeah mm-hmm. were, were either of those seem like a bigger deal in the attention you received after winning Mm. being a woman definitely seemed like a big deal to people who've interviewed me and i understand people who want to write stories about courageous women but i think all women and all men are courageous and can can be courageous when they choose to be so it doesn't seem to me that relevant and i certainly didn't think of myself as a woman back then i do i think i do now actually (laughs) but back then not that i i just didn't really feel like i just felt like i was a person and it didn't make i'd grown up amongst brothers so i sort of thought i was a boy in a sense i think deep down i mean there's just been an article that's come out literally this morning about my period and how someone who read an early draft of the book and wanted to help me try and get it published said I'd, I wouldn't write about your period in there I'm not sure the male readers can cope with it and I actually listened to her and I took it out and I was so shocked when I remembered this two years later going back over the draft you know I put it back in and of course it should be in there my my blood is important it's important mm-hmm. that I'm a woman and I bleed and I ha- that was the thing I had to contend with on the race and that all female athletes have to contend with and sometimes, and I, I love my period, but some people it's a really difficult thing. And I didn't have any tampons or any pads, so I was just um, hoping that I wouldn't, you know, bleed onto the saddle and such like. And I noticed as I'm talking th- about this, I feel slightly uncomfortable, whereas I wouldn't if I was telling you that I felt a bit ill during the race or that I got sick during, t- towards the end, which in- equally involved bodily fluids. But somehow it's still like not quite okay to talk about what comes out of my vagina. And it's, it's like so interesting to me that I feel uncomfortable. So I think that that's been quite important, actually, that the, I'm glad that journalist asked me about that when she interviewed me a couple of weeks ago. And and it is, like I, I think, for, from a gap year perspective, being a woman is interesting because you go to a different country and being a woman signifies something different and you have to be adaptable and know that you can't behave in the same way as you might yeah i think and i uh, i saw that that article came out and we were we talked about it before you came came on because we were wanted to ask you about it so i'm glad you brought it up because i think <laughs> that it, it is a i mean to it's not i shouldn't it's not surprising that someone kind of cautioned you against talking about it but i think it's really good that you kept it in because it is something that we all have to 
um, that we that half the population handles um, on a monthly basis and also something that is um, a reality of traveling and a reality of, of seeing how other women handle that time all over the world in different contextual settings is also incredibly interesting and, and how that brings up different gender disparity issues and things like that. So I think that um, mm. both in your personal context as well as just kind of putting it out there to be examined and thought about in the in the travel and uh, cultural comparison context, I think is kind of interesting as well. Mm, yeah, because I didn't actually stop to think about how women on the step might deal with their periods. That's really interesting. I'd love to hear about that too. So when you were actually dealing with it on the race, um, did you worry that when you were getting on your horse or switching saddles and stuff that it would be something that like the Mongolian men would be offended by or anything like that because that, I mean again like a different different cultural context can be it could be maybe be a not a big deal or it could be a huge deal where they you know um where it's it's very taboo mm. whoa yeah god what was I thinking so my job <laughs> so I had one saddle that I was cha- changing from horse to horse and it was ours that we'd rented it it was black nylon so there wasn't much risk of the saddle getting obvious damage I was wearing blue jumpers which I was convinced were going purple underneath in between my legs I was more embarrassed that the steward I fancied who appeared every four or five stations I'd see him every couple days might spot this because you know Mm. that was it I I didn't think I didn't care I didn't care if a Mongolian person or one of the vets saw that I was on my period. I didn't really care if they saw that. I was mm. so deep into this race. I was so intent on my onwards motion. I was so tired. I was in pain. I wanted to make myself laugh, to cheer myself up. I had so many more important things to think about. And a sort of trail of blood coming out of me was just like so unimportant. It didn't, I mean, it was important in that it took up some of my consciousness, but I didn't let it take up very much. It was very natural to me that that was happening. And in some sense, the period isn't that weird of a thing. Like it's quite a normal thing. And it it doesn't need to be written about or thought about as a shocking thing. But I noticed that I'm talking about it as though it might have been, you know, this wild, you know, apparition. And it's not, oh yeah, it's my period. It's just like another another thing. It's, yeah, it's very, very normal, very normal. So, Laura, I know, too, um, obviously you've taken this experience that you've had and you've done a beautiful job of putting that into words and telling that story. And I think, you know, a lot of gap year students have these personally profound experiences on their gap year, and but not everyone's able to translate that necessarily into a book, um, or maybe not as eloquently as you have. So what advice might you have for gap students who might be aspiring writers or who want to publish an essay or book inspired by their gap time? Hmm. Love that question. Okay, so I'm going to be giving advice. I think that it's very important, if you have any inclination for expressing yourself in words, to just write, 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 and not to be invested in the ends. I mean, the wonder of a gap here is that you're not really invested in the ends. You're just going through a process and you're not trying to achieve anything like the exams and the university entrances you might have been wanting at school. I think that's really valuable when you're learning to write or trying to write. It's just like not always trying to get published, not always trying to make something, but just sort of write your way through a swamp of confusion, carry on in that confusion, allow things to be messy, allow yourself to be unknowing when you write, 
uh, not to go somewhere and have a story about it, not to think that there's a meaning in everything, which is very easy to do when you go, especially I think to some other place to sort of create a concise story about it. And to just be really sensitive and knowing if you're writing about somewhere else, your what you're writing is going to stand for that place in a sense in whoever's reading its imaginations. You have to be really careful not to let that if you're writing about something that's sensitive and um, yeah, it's important to make it now. So I quite enjoy an exercise of not using any place names when I write about a place. So it's like just writing about it and not giving anything away as to where this place might be, but letting it still be nonfiction. That's for fun exercise because then you're not trying to categorize or put something into a place or make it exciting because of where it is like, oh, it's set in, Afghanistan so people will want to read it well it's not important what's important is you know whether you're you're you've really honed your voice in it and whether you found your voice in that that writing and I think when when I was 19 and when I I still feel quite 19 I think still writing is most fun because it's about finding a voice so just just uh, that sounds so cliche but what what I mean about it is going back to your work and finding that particular sentence that you think sounds profoundly pre pre baby you like the original mm-hmm. Lara or the original Margot or whoever uh, I think that that's what's exciting about writing and then those can like live on in you and care for you and you sort of have a reflection of yourself and then to share that is a wonderful thing but it doesn't need to be immediate it does does it's a, it can be an exasperating process trying to get stuff published but online essays and things de- definitely needed for people in school who want to read more about people who've been on gap years especially in the states yeah that's you know i think that those stories um are really powerful we actually um, a few weeks ago, there was a um, gap year conference, and at the conference, we had uh, an event where it was a storytelling event, essentially like mini TED Talks, five minute, seven minute long stories about people's experiential learning, you know, um, mm-hmm. journeys. And, and it was awesome to hear how these little snippets of experiences, and sometimes it was just one event that someone talked about, or it was one theme that was strung throughout their year. And that's also a really great way of of t- describing the the nature of a gap year is through the actual um, verbal storytelling as well. Yeah, that's great. It's so much easier, I think. Sorry, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, definitely. You know, to zoom out. Um, you know, we have so many listeners who are either on their gap year or or probably more commonly thinking about taking gap time. So as as someone who is, um, you know, a prominent gap year personality, I guess we could say <laughs> a niche within a, a niche within a niche, maybe, um, you know, what what I mean, how would you how would you describe the decision to take a gap year? And what what advice would you give to people who are thinking about taking gap time? Mm. So I think it's harder to take gap time than to not take gap time because to take gap time, as I said at the beginning, is to sign on for uncertainty. Taking a gap year is brave and everyone can be brave. So as soon as you take the decision to do it, I think you're almost at the end of it. It's such such a bold thing to do. And I think not to worry about what it would involve in the end, I don't actually think any gap year can really go wrong because whatever you do will be something new and it won't be something that 
you've tried to control too much or perhaps it will and I think that's important after after being in a system that has controlled your life or you know doing small things a gap year can really ask you to think bigger not necessarily to think globally but to think big about what it means to be human and that we're all going to die and you know things things that we might not normally engage in that we're a bit scared of mm. sort of like that the gap here is the time to be open to those ideas and to let them come in i love that yeah we we likened it sometimes to stepping off the treadmill um that's mm. kind of one of the oh, colorful yeah. pieces of language that we that we say about it here yeah yeah, and I think it, it is so true. It is it is the brave choice. It's not the easy choice. It's certainly stepping outside of your comfort zone or what might be just, yeah, the, the easy and normal next step. Um, so just overall, Laura, you have shared so many wonderful insights with us today, and it has been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. So thank you for joining us. And thank you to everyone out there for listening. So you can find Laura and Rough Magic at your favorite bookstore or on Instagram at Laura, Laura Fryer Falmer. And you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Gap Year Radio or online at gapyearradiopodcast.com. And you can email us your Gap Year questions or comments at gapyearradio at gmail.com. And lastly, you can download our show wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you have a moment, we'd love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts so more people can discover the show. So now I want to tell you about an exciting giveaway alert that we're having um, because we want everyone to read Lara's book. Um, it's really inspiring. It's really, I think that it's very atmospheric. Um, we really enjoyed it. Uh, other, many other uh, reviewers uh, have agreed with us, including the New York Times and lots of other amazing outlets. So, um, you know, if you are shopping for a gap year student this holiday season, maybe think about getting a copy of Rough Magic for them. And we are going to help out listeners by giving away a copy of Rough Magic through an Instagram contest. So if you don't currently follow Gap Year Radio, please find us on Instagram at Gap Year Radio. Give us a like. And on a recent post or an upcoming post, tag a friend who loves to travel or who you think should travel on a gap year. And this contest is going to be running from December 2nd through December 16th. We'll announce a, a winner uh, on the 17th and we'll send them a copy of Rough Magic just in time for the holidays. So we're really excited about this uh, giveaway and getting people more excited about Lara's book. And yeah, so find us there and we will give you a shout. If you'd like a visual of the grandeur of the Mongol Derby, I would recommend watching the documentary All the Wild Horses, which is available on Hulu, and it covers the race and riders, so can definitely paint a picture for those interested in the book and the experience. And then, Laura, for you, so we've been trying to sign off every pod in a different foreign language, and so we thought we'd see, I know it's been a while, um, but if you might have some Mongolian up your sleeve to say thank you or goodbye or anything along those lines. Mm, yes, um, my accent apologized for in advance. Uh, that's it. And what is that goodbye? That's thank you. I don't know. It's signed by Nurse. Hello. I'm not sure what goodbye is. I never say goodbye to anybody. I just leave. <laughs> See you later. Well, then we'll, we'll, we'll leave it at thank you. Um, and and that's exactly how we feel about you being here, Lara. So thank you. And what was that word again? Bayalachla. Beautiful. Bayal. I can't. I shouldn't even try. Bayalachla. Keep it classy, Margot. Just say it. <laughs> 
Thank you. Keeping it classy. Thank you for being here today, Laura. Thank you, Faye. Thank you so much for having me.